0: Thank you, Jordan. If you'd please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 29. 1 Samuel 29. been trying uh, for the last couple of weeks to recalibrate my mind and my attention on 1 Samuel. And as I did that, Reread some of these chapters, worked through um, these chapters that are before us today. I was reminded of something that you will all agree with me on, I think, or at least feel that we live in a day when we do not trust human authority very much. And there are really good reasons to not trust human authority in our culture, in our world, even in the church at large. Because those who have been given power and authority so often abuse that power and authority. Instead of serving the people that are under them, they either directly or indirectly end up hurting them. This is true in families. This is true in churches, in our communities. It's true even at a national level. Sometimes those in human authority and power hurt whole nations. Vladimir Putin is only the most recent example of that in human history. But he comes in a long lineage of sinful leaders who leave carnage. In their wake. His legacy stretches all the way back to Adam in the Garden of Eden who was given an authority position as a vice-regent of God Himself and through His unfaithfulness wreaked havoc on the entire human race. We are studying First and Second Samuel this morning and... I'm reminded of leaders that leave carnage in their wake as I look at King Saul. So much of 1 Samuel is a study in contrasts, the contrasts of human leaders. Now we can get duped into thinking this is simply a character study and not about the work that God is doing. But there is much to learn from the characters in the Bible. And we see a contrast between human leaders in this book. We saw it early, the contrast between Eli and Samuel, an untrustworthy leader and a trustworthy leader. But the bulk of our our attention, the bulk of space in 1 Samuel is devoted to the contrast between Saul and David. If you'll recall, in 1 Samuel 8, Israel asked for a king like the nations, but the reason they asked for a king like the nations is they had rejected the Lord as their king over them. And that's really what goes wrong with human leaders. God agreed to their request, but He graciously warned them that a king like the nations will be marked by something Common throughout all time. They will take. They will take. They will take. Now, God is not against human authority. He established it in the garden. And He's not against His people having a king. He actually established that too. All the way back in Deuteronomy, He made His intentions known. But He is against sinful authority that usurps the authority of God. In chapter 12, God made it clear to the people of Israel how they could get on well with a human king. If they and their king would simply follow the Lord, fear the Lord, obey the voice of the Lord, then all would go well with them and with their king. But if they would not follow the Lord, If they would not obey his voice and especially if the king did not obey his voice, it would go very badly for them and their king would be removed. Well, Saul, being a king like the nations, did exactly what God said that a king like the nations would do. He took from the people. He took their sons. For the military, he took from their fields, he took from their flocks. And then we have that gross chapter twenty two, where he takes the lives of all of the priests of Nob, slaughters them, all except for Abathar, who got away. Saul didn't obey the voice of the Lord. When the Lord told him in chapter 15 to devote the Amalekites to complete destruction, he kept the best stuff for himself and didn't have the guts to put the king of the Amalekites to death as he was instructed to do. And so the Lord told him that he would be removed from being king. But at the same time, he said that he would replace This king, like the nations, with a king after God's own choosing, a king after God's own heart, and that was David. So Saul is rejected in chapter 15, David is selected in chapter 16, and then everything that follows in 1 Samuel is this contrast between an untrustworthy king and leader versus a trustworthy king and leader as Saul comes to grips with his own demise and the slow rise of David he starts acting really badly even trying to kill David at multiple points along the way but as David is threatened by Saul he generally acts faithful to God and even to Saul he says explicitly on multiple occasions that he will not stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed, against Saul. He will leave vengeance to the Lord. He will not take it upon himself. When we paused our series on Samuel in November, I don't know if you remember, but we had we left it on a major cliffhanger and it's been two and a half months since we've been in that book that major cliffhanger there was actually two cliffhangers so let me just remind you of those before we jump in to our text the first one was with david as david is on the run from saul he decides that he will go find refuge in philistine territory with achish the king of gath he's trying to keep saul from taking his life but also a confrontation that may lead him to take Saul's life, which he has vowed not to do. In doing this, David deceives Achish into thinking that he's on Achish's side and against Israel. He even goes and makes raids on Israel's enemies, but he tells Achish that he's making raids on the people of God in Judah. Achish takes the bait, but it backfires on David. Achish trusts David so much, he says, okay, let's go into battle against Israel together. So David is in a major pickle. What will he do? Will he risk his life and come clean with Achish? Or will he go against the vow that he has made and fight against his own people, Israel? Well, we turn to the next chapter, chapter 28, and the scene shifts to Saul. So we don't know. Saul himself is up against a very difficult situation at Gilboa. The Philistines have lined up to come against him and to destroy him. He's in great distress, needs help, but instead of seeking the Lord's help, he seeks the witch of Endor. I won't go back into all of the weeds of that story if you missed it, You can go and look at that sermon, but we do need to at least say how things ended there so we can make sense of the passage before us this morning. The witch calls up Samuel, and Samuel simply reiterates to Saul what he had already told him in chapter 15. You disobeyed the voice of the Lord your God, you're rejected. And not only that, tomorrow you will die, and so will all of your sons. We see both of these cliffhangers resolved in the chapters in front of us this morning. In chapter 29, David gets out of his pickle. In chapter 31, Saul dies, and so do his sons. I'm not going to focus on chapter 31 this morning, except by way of referencing it a few times. We'll pick that up next week as we look at David's response to Saul's death in 2 Samuel chapter 1. For today, I want to focus our attention on David. He is by no means a perfect man, but we are meant to see that he stands in stark contrast to Saul. He is meant to serve as a picture that a human king can be trustworthy. And more than that, he is meant to point us to the trustworthy king, King Jesus. Human leaders will always let us down, even the most trustworthy of them. But Christ will not. Most leaders, but especially ones like Saul, they will take from the people, but not Jesus. He gives to the people. He blesses the people. He is a king that we should trust. That's the lesson. That we are learning today in a world full of leaders we can't trust there is one that we can trust and as we look to him we then also learn the way that we should lead and the types of leaders that we should look to so this morning I'm going to work my way through chapters 29 and 30 and I want to show you five ways that David points to Jesus and five reasons we can trust the king of God's own choosing. Long intro, but now it's time to read. So stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read just chapter 29. I will summarize and walk you through 30 as we go. This is what God's Word says. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who's been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place where you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lords do not approve of you, so go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord, who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I framed this whole sermon around the notion that David is a picture of a king we can trust. And then we just read chapter 29. And you're maybe thinking, I don't know if I can trust a king like that. He's being completely deceptive to Achish. It's true. He is being completely deceptive Akish, But I want to make an argument that he's doing so in such a way that should lead the people of God to trust him, not to distrust him. It's true that David is being false to Akish, but there is a veiled irony in this chapter that we are meant to see. And I hope to be able to show you that we are meant to see. To see it. Though being false to Achish. David is being true to the people. That he should be true to. To God. And to God's anointed. Albeit wicked king. Saul. Achish says three times in this chapter. I have found no fault with David. Did you hear the repetition? He even says you have been honest. And I want to go out on a limb and say that Akish is speaking better than he knows through these utterances, but in an ironic way. I think this is a direct allusion to the very words that Pilate said as Jesus was on t- trial and three times says, I find no guilt in this man. But in what way is David faultless? In what way is he honest? He's being honest or being true to Saul. The commanders of the Philistines are against David going into battle with them, I think because they see through David even though Achish can't. So they tell Achish to send David home. And in verse 8, when Achish breaks the news to David, David says, but what have I done David has asked this question before in the book. He's asked his brothers, remember? As they're facing Goliath, and he comes to the, to the battlefield. They, say, they, they mock him, and he says, what have I done? He says it later to Jonathan about Saul. What have I done? He says it to Saul directly. What have I done? And in every one of those occasions where that phrase, that question is asked... David's hands are clean. So that's our first contextual clue that he is innocent and he is honest. He goes on to say to Achish, What have you found in your servant that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? On the surface, this seems like that thing you do at a restaurant. Sometimes it's like, I'll pay. No, I'll pay. No, I'll pay. And you do this dance, but really you're hoping the other person pays. David's like, oh, what what, what have I done wrong? But he's really thinking, oh, I'm glad you've let me off the hook. I don't think that that's what's going on here. I think he actually wants to go. But why do I say that? Because of a very key phrase that again is repeated three times within the book of 1 Samuel. He says that he wants to fight against the enemies of my Lord, the King. That phrase used three other times in 1 Samuel always refers to Saul. Every time. So you see, the commanders of the Philistines have David figured out. But Achish is duped. Look back at verse 4. It's really commentary on what David is trying to do. The commanders say that if David goes into the battle with the Philistines, he'll turn on them. I think that's what he intends to do. They say, how else would he be reconciled to his Lord? Speaking of Saul, which is the question in David's mind. It's only with the heads of these men. You know, every time heads roll in 1 Samuel, it's always Philistine heads. Whether it's their god Dagon, or their champion Goliath, When David goes against Philistines, heads roll. The commanders know that. They know his reputation. He has struck down his tens of thousands. We would be fools to let this guy go into battle with us. And I think that that is apparently, because of all of the evidence I've just put forward to you, that's exactly why David's hands are clean here. He intends to get out of this pickle of not stretching out his hand against the Lord's anointed by stretching out his hand against the enemies of the Lord and the Lord's anointed. But God had other plans for David. God planned for Saul to die. Not at David's hands, but at the hands of the Philistines. And if God's going to accomplish that purpose, he needs David out of the equation. Because when David's in the mix, Philistines die. And this leads us to the first reason God's king is trustworthy. He doesn't repay evil for evil. I know this is a complicated point, but I think it's the point that we are meant to see in this chapter. Yes, David will fight against the enemies of God but he will not repay evil for evil when it has to do with the king that the Lord has put on the throne. Even though Saul had done him wrong. So just like Jesus, when he is reviled, he does not revile in return. When he is harmed, he does not harm in return. That's why we can trust God's chosen king. God had a plan for Saul to die at the hands of the Philistines. You can read about that in chapter 31. But the narrative doesn't go to chapter 31 next. You see, God had a plan for David as well, a substitute plan that is recorded in chapter 30. And what you need to understand as a reader is that the events that are taking place in chapter 30 and the events that are taking place in chapter 31 are happening roughly at the same time. and It draws out very important contrasts between David and Saul. As David makes his way back to Ziklag, he finds himself in a very difficult situation. So he's out of the pickle with the Philistines, but it's out of the frying pan into the fire for him. Literally, the fire. As he shows up back at his camp, he sees that the Amalekites have completely plundered the camp. They've burned it to the ground, and they've hauled off all of David and his men's wives, their sons, and their daughters, including David's wives, his sons, and his daughters. And if that were not enough, the men who are with David now want to stone him to death because of what has happened. So, will David show himself to be a trustworthy anointed king? And if so, how? Notice in verse 6, we read that David was greatly distressed. Another one of these phrases that shows up one other time in 1 Samuel. It's in chapter 28. As the Philistines make their way toward Saul in Gilboa, we read that he was greatly distressed. And as David's armies arrive at Ziklag, David is greatly distressed. I've tried to piece together the chronology of all of this, and I think that Saul is greatly distressed at the exact same time that David is greatly distressed. Different location, but roughly the same time. But the way they respond to their distress is very different. What does Saul do when he's up against the wall? He goes to the witch at Endor. What does David do? In his grief, and when his men want to put him to death, he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And this leads us to the second reason that God's chosen king is trustworthy. He finds his strength in the Lord. The phrase strengthened himself in the Lord is also repeated one other time in first Samuel. See so you're getting a good review of first Samuel this morning. Chapter 23, when Saul is pursuing David, Jonathan comes to David and strengthened David's hand in the Lord. How did he do that? He strengthened his hand in the Lord by reminding David of God's promises that he had already made to him in the past. Remember, David, you will be king. My father, he will not be king. You will be king. And David was encouraged and strengthened by that promise. I wonder if David strengthening himself in the Lord here at Ziklag is not simply him rehearsing, okay, I know this, I know this, I know things are really bad right now, but I know what God has said. I will be king. I can trust Him with the details and the logistics between now and then. Friends, if you want to find strength in your distress, and I know you're up against a lot of it, the best thing that you can do is be reminded of the promises of God. If you are in Christ, you are secure. If you are in Christ, you will go the way that He went. He suffered. He died. But He is risen from the dead. And you too will one day be raised with him. The promise of that day is the strength you need to get you through this day. David, a man that we can trust in this story, is a man who strengthens himself in the Lord. But not simply by recalling past promises, but also seeking a present word from the Lord. And so he calls for Abathar to the priest priest, to inquire of the Lord for him. And the Lord gives him a word. You will overcome the Amalekites. That's another promise. But also a command. Pursue them. Pursue them. And that leads us to the third thing that we learn about God's trustworthy king. He obeys the word of the Lord. He immediately pursues the Amalekites just like God told him to do. And what we are meant to see here is a contrast with Saul. Remember, what's the main reason Saul is being removed from being king? It's something that happened way back in chapter 15. God gave him a word to devote the Amalekites to complete destruction. But he kept for himself the best of the spoil and he wouldn't put their king to death. God said, you don't obey my voice? You don't submit to me? You will not serve others you will be removed friends i want you to catch that point i just made trustworthy leaders have to submit to god you see it works like this if you can't obey the one over you why in the world would god entrust you with a responsibility to have authority over others Those who are given authority are given it by God and therefore they must submit to God. Their submission to God is not simply lip service. It will be proven out in your life and in obedience. Saul does not obey the word regarding the Amalekites. David does. He goes in pursuit of the Amalekites with 600 men, not all of them, have the energy to keep up the pursuit. So 200, a third of his ragtag army, is sloughed off and left behind at the brook of Bezor. But God provides for David. He provides an Egyptian slave who was left behind by the Amalekites after they plundered David's camp. And this slave leads them to that camp. And we read in verse 17 that David struck them down as God said he would, from twilight until the evening of the next day. David rescued everything, verse 18, that the Amalekites had taken. So again, while Saul's losing everything that God had given to him at Gilboa, taking his own life, and while through his disobedience, Others are losing their lives on the battlefield. David is recovering all that was taken from him through faith in God's promises and obedience to God's Word. And what's more is they not only recover what they lost, they pick up more. They take the livestock from the Amalekites. Look at verse 20. We see, and this is an important word if we're going to understand what comes next. This is David's spoil. It's really interesting. We have one verse on the battle. One verse on the battle. The rest of the narrative is all about what David does with the spoil. Remember, what does Saul do? He takes. What will David do with that which was given to him you know how families can be when an inheritance is divided up even healthy families people start getting real grabby I mean what family has not at least experienced some level of tension after the death of a parent and things are divvied up Sometimes outright division. People are not talking to one another ever again after what went down. David is aware of this as he comes back to Ziklag. And what he does leads to our fourth reason that God's king is trustworthy. He makes peace among the children of the Lord. David knows there will be a spat over the spoil and so when they get to the brook of Bezor where the 200 men had been left behind, look at verse 21, he greets the whole company. The English veils something here. It literally reads, it's a simple way to put it, he asked them for peace. So David shows up knowing that things are going to be tense Because there's a certain group of people that don't think that the 200 that stayed behind ought to get any of the spoil. And so he starts by asking for peace. We see that in verse 22, it's worthless men who are among David's soldiers that don't think the 200 should get any piece of the pie. Worthless men is also repeated in this book, isn't it? Who are the first worthless men we're introduced to? Eli's sons. The people that rejected Saul as king when he was anointed, they were called worthless men. But the most proximate to our story is a man by the name of Nabal. How did David do when he encountered a a worthless man last time? Not so well. Thank God for Abigail who saved his neck. But apparently David has learned something in the interim about how to act when up against worthless men. David does three things to create peace amongst the people of God in this section that are really remarkable. The first is he calls these worthless men brothers. That's how he addresses them. He could have just given them an earful. That's what I would have done. But instead, he appeals to the solidarity that they have in this mission, that the solidarity that they have as the children of God. The next thing he does is to remind them that the spoil was from the Lord. They didn't earn it. It was given to them. This is key to not being stingy and greedy and grabby. We just talked about it a few weeks ago. What? Where did everything you have come from? God. It, we are so blind to it. We think that the money we have, the stuff we have, the education that we have, we earned it. We accomplished it. We achieved it. It's all from God. Every last bit of it. And we have to come to see that all that we have in life is gift. It is grace. That is what will lead to sharing. Grace is not about fairness. It's about generosity. The third thing that David does is remind them that everybody had a part to play in this mission. It's not just the people on the platform. It's the people behind the scenes as well. It's not just the strong It's the weak too. It's not just those who are on the front line of the battle. It's also those who stayed back at base and guarded the baggage. All of them have a part to play in the mission that is at hand. And David reminds them of this. Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12? Every part of the body is indispensable. We can't despise any part of it. Wasn't that what we were reminded of in Nicole Harm's service? We all have a part to play. We have to see that if we are going to act peaceably toward one another. David appeals to brotherhood. He appeals to grace. He appeals to the equality we have in the family of God. He is a leader who seeks to bring people together when they're trying to tear each other apart. But not only is he a trustworthy leader who makes peace, he is fifthly also generous with the Lord's gifts. When David finally makes it back to Ziklag, he sends part of the spoil to the elders in Judah. There's a lot of explanation for why David did this. But I simply want to highlight, he didn't owe them anything. He was generous to them nevertheless. But the main thing that strikes me is the way that he addresses the elders in Judah in verse 26. Take a look at it if you would. He sent part of the spoil to his friends the elders of Judah. Some people think that he's acting like a politician and sending ahead a gift so that he can procure favor in the future with them. I think he's simply acting out of generosity toward those he considers his friends. Here is a present, he says, for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. We are meant to see a contrast. Saul takes. David gives. This is the man of God's own choosing. A king who does not call his people, his subjects, although we are his subjects, but instead calls them his friends. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 15? I no longer call you servants, but friends. And greater love has no one than this, that somebody would lay down his life for their friends. David is not perfect. That will be very clear as we continue in this series. But in this scene, we are meant to see the picture of a trustworthy king. And we are meant ultimately to see Jesus because that is what all of the things in this story are pointing us to. They are not meant to whitewash David. They are meant to point us to Christ, the perfect One who gave His life to pay the price for our sins. He laid down His life for His friends. Human leaders will let us down. The Son of God became our brother By taking on flesh, He will never let us down. He is completely trustworthy. That's the takeaway today. I want you to acknowledge something, to see something. When Jesus is risen from the dead, He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Jesus has great authority, the most authority. As a human leader. He is God, but He is also man. And he is the first human leader to do it right all the way through. But before all authority in heaven and on earth was given to him, before that happened, he proved through his life that he was trustworthy. He did that by not repaying evil for evil. He did that by finding his strength in the Lord when he was up against a wall. He did that by obeying God to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Lord didn't deliver Him like He delivered David here from death, but He did deliver Him through death. Jesus was raised on the third day. God gave Jesus the victory, a much greater victory than the victory that David was given. He gave Him the spoils. He has plundered the strong man's house. But guess what? He's not keeping the goods to Himself. He's distributing them freely to His brothers, to His friends. He gives all who trust in Him the gift of forgiveness of sins. Eternal life. He's given us the Holy Spirit. As He ascended on high, He led a host of captives And He has then distributed gifts to men. Spiritual gifts. A spiritual family. He is trustworthy. But if you want to receive the bounty of the spoil, you have to trust Him. You have to place your faith in Him. And that will be proven by following Him. Of doing like He did. And you know what that means? Most of you here this morning, not all of you, but most of you, you have some slice of authority. What will you do with it? Will you use others to take for yourself? Or will you see your role as a leader, your authority that you've been given as a stewardship from God to be used to bless others? to give to others, and not to take from them. Jesus is proof that human authority can bless and doesn't have to hurt. We live in a world of many messed up and broken leaders. Like I said, we've seen it in the home, we've seen it in schools, We've seen it in churches. We've seen it in our country. We've seen it on the world stage as well. Jesus is hope in the midst of that. That He is a King that we can trust. But He's also an example for how we should lead. May we lead with the love of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank You for Jesus, the true and the better Adam who has reigned with perfect justice and righteousness. The true and better Israel. The true and better David. Our King. Lord, increase our confidence that He is trustworthy so that we would bow the knee in allegiance to Him, devotion to Him, obedience to Him so that You might be glorified and so that we might be blessed under the shelter of His wing. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.